Welcome to the More Than Child's Play podcast. This is your host, Nicole Surgent. I'm happy to have you here with us this evening for a really important conversation. I'm joined today with dear friends of mine named Sherry and Jeremy Mills. They are parents to a darling little girl who is quite beloved to both Lacey and myself. Her name is Lyra, and she is two and a half years old, and she loves animals and music and dancing and she also happens to have a diagnosis of Prader-Willi syndrome and May is Prader-Willi Awareness Month and so we are happy to have Sherry and Jeremy here to talk to us about their journey and to improve education and awareness around this diagnosis. Um, Lacey and I both feel that they are just excellent ambassadors um, for awareness and exceptional parents. And so we are thrilled to have them and um, very grateful for their time. So welcome guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're so happy to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your early journey with Lyra, a little bit about her birth story and when did you learn that she had PWS? Yeah, so um, I feel like this is kind of a long uh, introduction, maybe. Um, we had some issues with infertility before her. And so our pregnancy was a bit of a surprise, but also um, kind of scary because we also had a miscarriage um, early on of one pregnancy. And so we went into the pregnancy with all these different emotions and ultimately all we wanted was a pregnancy to go full term. We declined all of the initial early on pregnancy screenings because in our minds, we didn't care what was wrong with a child. We just wanted a child and not that it really mattered because Prader-Willi is not something that they test for in, in early pregnancies, um, at least not yet. I know that the, they are working on that, but it is presently not something that um, obstetricians look for. Had it been, though, they probably could have treated my pregnancy a lot better. We would have been less scared um, and they could have intervened a lot sooner once she was born. So... Um, my pregnancy is that of a lot of other pregnancies for parents who have children with Prader-Willi syndrome. We had essentially almost no fetal movement. So um, I was on bed rest at the time for um, preterm labor, which I ended up having, which is not so common, but um, I was on bed rest anyway. So I was really paying attention to my pregnancy and I think we were at labor and delivery like 20 times because, at yeah, at least because we would call and say, Hey, I haven't felt, I haven't felt any movement. What should we do? And of course they're going to send us to the hospital to get checked out. So all of these screenings, we barely passed. Um, and towards the end of the pregnancy, we were um, getting scares from the doctor saying, well, if you don't pass, we're going to deliver tonight. And we're like, Oh my gosh, we're not ready. Um, but then they'd send us home and, um, all along we had two different teams of perinatologists looking at us too, not really understanding, you know, what was happening. And, you know, just like us, we're like, maybe we'll find some answers once she's born. Um, and so at the end we had one really big scare and it was a, about like 34 weeks and Jeremy and I were like, please just deliver her because we don't want to risk, like, what if we're keeping her inside and then by us not delivering her, you know, she ends up passing away or something, you know, really bad. So they still wouldn't do it. So we begged and begged and got a scheduled C-section at 36 weeks. So we went in for our scheduled C-section and 
everything was fine. Um, she came out crying. Um, her app car scores were really good. I got to hold her, um, during the remainder of the surgery and everything was good. We went to post-op and I remember looking across like while I was in the bed, you know, being taken care of and Jeremy was with the nurses and Jeremy came over and said, Hey, they want to take her to the NICU because there's a little bit of breathing concerns, but nothing else. They just want to make sure that she's okay. And of course I'm scared because I just went through the surgery and I want my husband with me, but you know, he has to go with her. So eventually I make it over to the NICU and I can't hold her. I can't touch her. You know, she's hooked up to all this equipment. Um, and you know, as the days progress, we're finding out more. She has no suck reflex, reflex. Um, And just essentially like they call it failure to thrive where she's not crying for food. She's not asking for food. There's no cues there. Um, She essentially had almost no muscle tone. She was this floppy baby. Um, Her breathing issues, which I mentioned, um, other things like um, smaller hands and feet, just there were some signs to the neonatologist enough to be like, hey, I think we should order genetic testing. So they ordered genetic testing and we waited about two weeks for it to come back. And I remember we were in the NICU um, as we were every day for almost 12 hours a day, as much as we could be there with another child. And the NICU doctor walked in during his rounds, like he did every day. And almost as if he was telling us, Hey, she's going to get a bath today. He just says, your diagnosis came back and she has Prader-Willi syndrome. Well, he said Prader-Willi syndrome because he didn't even know how to say it. And I remember looking at Jeremy to be like, okay, like, did, did we just hear that correctly? Did he really give us a diagnosis? Like what, what is his reaction? And I just, you, you just feel like all the blood rush to your head and your heart sink to your stomach. Because even though you kind of suspected something was wrong, like now you have a name for it. And it just is so real and raw all of a sudden. And he's just rambling off these facts that like you could tell he had read from some kind of medical book. Like he had no idea what he was telling us. And Then he said, you know, we're going to follow up with a geneticist. Um, They don't even have access to the hospital. So we had to do like a a Zoom call, which two years ago was different than it is today. Um, And and then this geneticist is going to tell us more. So um, we waited for the geneticists a week later. And, um, you know, they eventually like told us all of this stuff about Prader-Willi syndrome. And even then it was still like they were reading from a book, you know, like, I mean, Prader-Willi syndrome is one in 15,000 people. Um, That's how rare it is. I think like Down syndrome is like one in 700. Um, I don't know, maybe I need like a fact checker for that or something, but. (laughs) I'm curious, had you ever heard of that diagnosis before that doctor said it to you? No. no, never heard of it before. And actually, I have a friend of mine who works as a medical professional, and he had said that he was familiar with it, but hadn't really, you know, kind of gone into understanding it in folding because it is so rare. Um, so kind of getting into what Prada really is or PWS, it's a genetic deletion on chromosome 15. Um, the pair that is the set that's inherited from the father is missing a piece of relatively small piece in the Prader-Willi critical region, they say, um, which causes all of these effects, like what we were seeing, the low tone, the no sucking reflex, a lot, a host of other conditions, especially when they're young, that they have. Um, as they get older, as kids with Prader-Willi get older, the, the condition takes other phases into where they are affected by not only hyperphagia in being you know, having this insatiable appetite, but also because of their lower muscle tone, a slower metabolism. They tend to have some sort of intellectual disability, or even if they are of a normal intellectual level, they have some sort of learning disability, apraxia of speech, uh, a host and range of all kinds of situations that they have to deal with. Largely what they found is, you know, through 
early intervention with therapists and working especially with endocrinologists, there are ways to help the child succeed better and be set up better for the future with um, treatments like uh, growth hormone to build that uh, muscle tone and metabolism when they're younger, um, but also speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy to catch them up to their peers. It's not that they can't do it. It's just sometimes they need a little bit more help. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about that early journey for you as parents? What did you find the most challenging? What did you find the most helpful? Do you even remember it? You know, sometimes when I, when I talk to parents about processing those early times, they don't remember a lot of details because they're in, you know, fight or flight survival mode and they process it later on. But what was that like for you guys? Yeah. I mean, that's so true. I mean, I, I remember a lot of it. Um, but I, I mean, we're still trying to process that even today because when we were going to the NICU, we were just getting through the, going through the motions, you know, like we had to be a strength for our older son, um, and, you know, not break down in front of him. Um, we had to be a strength for each other. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, we were just going through the motions in the beginning that I don't think that we processed everything that we were going through. Um, and we spent five weeks in the NICU, um, before we kind of said to them like, Hey, we can't live here. You know, um, as much as we loved our nurses and they became family after a while, like, cause we saw them so much, like we did enough research on our own, um, to say, I think we need to transfer her to a larger hospital, which for us was children's hospital. And we need to have an abdominal surgery to give her a feeding tube because that was feeding was really the last thing that was holding us up from coming home. And the hospital that we were at never discharged anybody with a, a feeding tube tube in the nose. So we had to get to that other sur hospital to have the surgery to come home. So, and then once we had the surgery, we were there for another week in the PICU. So essentially six weeks, we were in hospitals before we were able to bring our baby home. And that's really when life started for us. You know, I mean, once you get home, like it becomes real. I remember sitting on the couch and just sobbing, <laughs> surrounded by all this medical equipment that we unloaded from the car because I finally had the children that I wanted at home with me, you know? Um, but then once we were home, we hit the ground running then too. I mean, they send you home and you're like, you have to follow up with all these specialists and that specialist would lead you to another specialist or you would have a test and then you'd have to go back and then get the, the answers. And gosh, I think we had like four or six appointments a week and most of them were an hour away from home. So we were barely at home then too. I mean, we were also living, just going through the motions just to get through all of those appointments and process. It's a full-time job. It's, it's a full-time job. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It really is. And so she came home from the hospital in about six weeks. She had a feeding tube. She had the G tube in her belly mm -hmm. and you had a list of specialists you were seeing. And then when was she referred for early intervention? How old was she? So we actually heard about it in the NICU. Um, her occupational therapist in the NICU had mentioned it to me. Um, and of course you can't really contact them until you get home because they don't know when you're coming home. And so we had contacted them and I think it was another month and a half, let's say, until we were set up with our team and finally had our first appointment. So we kind of started at three months. That that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and so she started with OT. Yes. And developmental probably, right? Just OT in the beginning. Just OT. And over, so she's two and a half now and, and in the past two and a half years, of course, frequency and services have changed, but she's had some input from PT, OT, speech, dietitian, vision, developmental, a service coordinator, and most recently, a communication specialist. Right. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, we have the full gamut of, of therapists and <laughs> we also have the full gamut of, of specialist doctors as well. And so doctor, our, our doctor, team is huge. Yeah, who else is on her medical team? On her medical team, we have two different endocrinologists, uh, an orthopedic surgeon who was helping her with her club feet when she was originally born, but also is monitoring her for scoliosis in the future. Um, of course, her regular pediatrician, and we do also have uh, a GI doctor on there just in case anything was a change, especially coming out of the feed tube and any issues that may arise from that in the future. Yeah, but we've also um, followed up with ENT because we had some sleep apnea issues for a while. So we were seeing those specialists in addition to ENT. Um, and we've gone to cardiology just to check all the boxes to make sure. I think the only specialist we haven't seen is neurology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of specialists. But I guess one thing I, I'm curious about as a therapist myself, what if, you know, our podcast brings in, I think, two big groups of listeners, parents and other therapists. And so uh, I feel comfortable enough with you guys to ask you this question. If, if a therapist is listening, and they get a referral for a kid with PWS or at really any medically fragile kid. And you've illustrated a good picture of early life and appointments and emotions coming out of the NICU. What do you wish therapists knew? What do you think they should know? Um, I think one of the biggest thing with therapists and I would say even doctors are don't label my child or anyone with this diagnosis as what you have heard, Um, whether from a book that you learned in medical school or from somebody else, or maybe even a patient that you had somewhere along your journey. Um, This is a spectrum disorder. So, you know, not every child has the same symptoms of Prader-Willi syndrome, but also it matters a lot what their early intervention was and then what kind of support system they have, whether at home or outside of home. And so don't, that's the first thing, don't be quick to label this child um, with this diagnosis. Um, What else do you think? I would say just to engage the family as as much as possible. Um, You know, Nicole, from working with us, we, both of us like to be involved and kind of update each other or speak with any one of our therapists on a constant basis, you know, so it's not just that one hour of time a week that you may get with, with speech or, or OT or PT, but giving us something to work on throughout the course of the week or until the next time that you, we see you, because that's really where Lyra has grown is just the repetitiveness and working on things constantly um, from speech of being able, or from PT of being able to walk at 18 months where a lot of kids with Prada really may not walk until two years, two and a half years, something like that. Or even with speech, even though she's still delayed, but we've seen exponential growth as time goes on, just through the repetition and working with yeah. Lacey and, and everyone just to accomplish that goal. You guys have done a really good job managing multiple therapists. And also, I think you have a really good sense of what you need and what she needs and not being afraid um, to articulate that because some things can be too much. Some things cannot be enough. I love um, that they have a, a chalkboard in their kitchen and they would have our different specialties up there. And, you know, I always say to parents, I'm going to give you maybe four or five different ideas, but if you have time for one thing this week, this is the one thing I want you to work on because there might be a rare occasion that you have time for three or four things, but in the practical world, you know, Lacey and I always say we're moms first and then therapists. And we know that more than likely on most weeks, you're going to have time for one thing. And so I love that you had that one thing highlighted and visible in your living space so that it could become part of your routine. And you know, as therapists, we talk about this a lot, a lot. We could tell you to do step ups, or we could tell you to count or sing as you walk up the steps to go to bath and use the techniques for steps as you go up every time you go up for bath or nap. If, if it's part of the routine, it's more likely to get done. And you guys have just done a really good job of 
making those suggestions part of your routine. So it's in my, I don't know what it feels like on your end, but from my perspective, you're not saying from one to three, we will have therapy hours. You know, you're constantly working with her just within your everyday activities. Yeah. I mean, it has to be right. Because I always say like, there's not a day that goes by that um, we forget about Prodder Willie, but there, you know, there's also a day that, that, that doesn't go by that we don't think about it. Like it's always there, right? It's always in your face and you're always reminded that your child is behind and that you have to do X, Y, Z. But if it becomes part of your routine, it's, it's a little less hard. Um, and I mean, I'll be honest, like, and you know, sometimes you give me something and then I, I, I come back the next week and I'm like, yeah, we didn't really get to that this week. Like, fine. Our routine was crazy. We were outside all week playing and we weren't in the house doing whatever activity we had to do or something. And that Things always makes up. me the happiest because the outside is the best. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but also part of that is like, as parents, sometimes you can't do it all and that's okay too. You know, like sometimes therapies just get to be too much and, yeah. and, and it's okay to say, Hey, from my mental health, we need to step back a little bit and, and not do all of these right now. Yeah. I think that's important. A lot of times we get parents that come out of the NICU and when we get to that first IFSP, they're like, I want everybody. I want all these services once a week. And, you know, we say it's a group decision and, you know, we'll certainly work to meet your needs, but also we want you just to have time to be a family where you're not just being a therapist for your kid. Mm. And I think that's important. I think it's important to carve in nothing time. Just yeah. I mean, we had to do that in the NICU. We removed the TV from our living room because when we came home, I didn't want to sit in front of the TV. I didn't want to lose that. And that really might be one of the biggest challenges is just spending time with each other, like finding the time to carve out, whether it's with our kids, our kids together, or even us with our marriage. Um, you know, it's just, it's so crazy to be doing all of these appointments and um, just everything that we have to do that it's important to just have family time too. Yeah. And it's all incredibly overwhelming, especially at first, you know, like we were talking about, you have all these appointments, all these follow-ups, but then going into early intervention and, and the initial meetings and trying to establish goals and you don't even know up from down at that particular point, yeah. much less, you know, where you want to be in six months, you know, yeah. for the initial review. But we just like to involve our family as much as possible, carve out that time that we're not worried about the diagnosis, but we're also, it's always in our, in the back of our heads, like Sherry was saying, you know, it's always there, but it might not be we're living this. It's not us. Correct. It's there. It's not us though. It doesn't define you and doesn't label you just like you don't label her. Okay. So can we talk about food a little bit? Because your food life, your your food prep, your mindfulness around food is, is different than most families. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why it's important to you, how you've learned about how to feed her well and to how to mentally handle her nutrition and what ways is that hard and what ways is it easier to manage if a family is listening to this what what tips do you have about food management yeah i mean it's it's really important because it has to be um as we mentioned what when you get your diagnosis and you're looking at these symptoms um hyperphagia is probably one of the scariest parts about Prader-Willi syndrome um, because we don't know when it starts for our kids. We know about these rough ages that the phases are, uh, but we don't know exactly when it starts. And as it progresses, it is probably the biggest thing that is most life-threatening for our kids because they can essentially eat themselves to death. They can tear their stomachs. They can, or also some of the other life-threatening um, like diabetes and things like that that can come with overeating and, and not eating healthy. So and just to explain real quick to someone who knows nothing about this, mm -hmm. 
Can you explain what that is and how they they don't have a sense for when full when they are full? So part of the chromosome deletion controls the hypothalamus, which sends those signals of being hungry or not being full. So with in kids that have Prader Willi, they just don't get those signals that a normal individual would get. Um, so that ends up being all those, like we were saying, all those scary parts that you that you can read about on the internet of kids eating through trash or locking your cupboards and locking your fridges, all of those scarier thoughts start coming in from that because that's the main identifying feature of the condition. Yeah, so they say, imagine the hungriest you have ever felt every second of the day. It doesn't matter if you just ate a meal, um, you are always hungry for food. In addition, um, a, a lot of people with Prader-Willi have anxiety specifically centered around food. So they're always worrying about when the, the food is gonna come because they don't believe you that they're gonna get food. Um, and so all of their thoughts are also centered around food. It just controls them. So it is really important to us to set that foundation for Lyra in the beginning. Um, for example, we've never given her sugar and we don't ever plan on giving her sugar because it is so addictive. The same is true with water and milk. That those are the only things that we will give her Be because as soon as she knows that, hey, juice tastes really good, I'm not going to drink that water anymore because um, it's not, it doesn't do anything for me. Whereas, you know, I can drink juice and it tastes good and all these things. So we really are careful, like what she eats as far as like, you know, just the makeup of her food and looking at the ingredients and, and things like that. But we're also monitoring portion sizes um, and making sure like we, we're not at a point where we need to count calories. Um, her growth chart is still in a, in a healthy range or we don't need to do that yet. Um, but we might someday, but we don't have to right now. But I mean, we have a, a list that we got from um, our endocrinologist in Florida, um, who is the, the leading doctor for Prader-Willi syndrome. And I know that this list is like readily available in the community too, but um, we have a list and we really just follow it. So on the list are things that she can have, things that we should avoid and, and things that are like, no, no, no. Um, and so like, for example, like peas, like peas are like not really great, but if she has them maybe once in a blue moon, um, but we really like, it's critical for us to meal plan so that our family, when we sit down for dinner are eating the same thing. So that, I mean, it's not fair to somebody to be like, oh, everyone else is having pizza and I'm sitting here eating my, you know, carrots and broccoli and chicken, whatever. It's not to say it doesn't happen. It, it does happen. Um, but we have like backups in the freezer in case like, you know, of course, like sometimes you get busy and you don't have time to cook a whole meal, but her food is always prepared and ready because it's important to us. We also, you know, using pizza as an example, we'll find ways to make what the rest of the family may be having friendly for Lyra. So we could use an Ezekiel English muffin with a little of our homemade tomato sauce and some cheese, perfectly compliant, perfectly everything and she can participate in it with the rest of the family. That's wonderful. You know, largely we do avoid a lot of those special modifications of saying like a baked good, like a, a cupcake or something. You can of course make it friendly for PWS without sugar, without white flour, without all these things and use almond flour or a variety of other use sweeteners. Black beans. Yeah, exactly. But when she grows older and hopefully independent and on her own, she won't, she may not understand that, okay, my mom made it special for me with this thing. And, oh, look, I can have this cupcake from this bakery here. It looks the same. It looks yeah. the same and it won't have the same effect and it can cause problems for her down the road. So we, we generally try to avoid that too, but yeah. try to include her with everything, special birthday treats. So early on those, those tips for food and, 
that all came from other parents and from your endocrinologist and from the association. That's where you learned what you know. Yeah. I mean, when we were in the NICU, we reached out to um, the Prader Willie Association and we were connected to like their Facebook groups for um, parent support and things like that. And just the wealth of information that is out there um, is probably where it started. And then um, we also got information for um, Dr. Miller, who is the endocrinologist in Florida and Um, She has a nutritionist on board and I know you were saying like, you know, we've had history of dietitians, nutritionists and things like that. But, um, you know, Dr. Miller's nutritionist is, is specializes in Prader Willie. And that's like I said, that's where we got the list and the information. And I can say from being in your house for so long now, you spend a lot of time uh, cooking homemade, good, nutritious meals. And, you know, that's not easy when you are working parents. Um, but you found a way to do it. So two, two comments there is one good job and it it's, is possible, right? So it's not easy, but it is possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it has to be a priority. Like, I, I mean, we would rather not have cable TV and buy organic food, you know, it's just a priority for us, um, for her health. Yeah. You know, uh, this sort of on that same topic, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you know about the research as of late regarding this? Yeah. So I know that you've kind of been in our little bubble, um, about, about this. So, um, there are so many great clinical trials that are going on right now. Um, and a lot of them in phase three, which, um, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I know everything about clinical trials because I, I don't, it's but closer to reality. <laughs> yeah. Right. Phase so phase three means almost real. <laughs> yes, exactly. It, it, it's, it's the last phase before it goes to the FDA. Um, and so there is a, um, a, a drug out there that went through clinical trials for hyperphagia and um, it was submitted to the FDA and the FDA came back and said, Hey, we need some more information on this. Um, and for us, when we saw um, Dr. Miller last year, um, we, you know, we of course asked about hyperphagia. Should, we, should what, you know, when is this normal toddler behavior or is this are we entering this new phase of, of Prada really like with the hyperphagia? And she's like, I'm not, I'm not even going to talk about hyperphagia because this new drug is like, you don't have to worry about it. And so like we had all this hope and then, you know, recently we found out that, you know, they need more information. Whereas we thought it was like a go, go, go. And so it was kind of devastating, but we are learning you know, it, it's, it might not necessarily be that the FDA is going to say no, but the FDA needs more information. I mean, think about how many rare diseases there are. They don't know everything about all the rare diseases. So part part of, you know, what they're doing right now is educating them on Prader Willie and why this is so important and why it is life-threatening if we don't get this approved. Um, you know, there are parents... Uh, who have children who have gone through the clinical trial who are sharing their stories with the FDA and saying, Hey, you know, my, my siblings, you know, were telling my parents that I needed to go into a group home because they they couldn't control me anymore. I mean, this is kids in their, in their teens are, are talking about their experience and, you know, they're aware how horrible it is that they can't control it. But then they went on this medication and life has changed. They're now baking cookies in the kitchen and going to restaurants and parties and things that they weren't able to do because of the food seeking without this medication. So I do think that there are things on the horizon and I know that things with the FDA take a long time and there's a process and stuff like that. Um, you know, we're so hopeful that before Lyra gets to that phase, that there will be something, um, to fight it. 
Is there anything that people who are listening that want to advocate for funding for that research or for consideration for the FDA? Is there someplace they can go to support that? Yeah, so the Potter-Willey Association, um, PWSA, is the USA chapter is in Florida. And I mean, you can go to their website, you can look them up. Um, there's another organization called FPWR, which is the Foundation for Research for Potter-Willey. They're out in California. Um, I don't think that they typically work together, but because this is so critical, they have been working together. And um, you can go to their sites and, and donate. Um, I mean, the thing is, is that clinical trials are expensive and we can't be where we are today without donations and funding. That's and especially now with May being Potter Willie Awareness Month, um, they're doing all kinds of specials and giving education classes, infographics about Potter Willie, its effects how it's how it was found all of that good information and background so if anyone's interested they can go to either of those they're both on facebook they're both everywhere um and just a wealth of information yeah that's great let's talk for a minute about dr miller how you knew about her how you met her what she's meant for lyra and your family what what do you think other families need to know about her so we found out about dr miller through some of the Facebook groups that the association hooked us up with. Everyone, you know, you would always see her name pop up in conversation of, oh, have you seen Dr. Miller yet? Have you gone here? She was really uh, critical in getting growth hormone approved by the FDA for the treatment of Prader Willi. Um, so she has dedicated her entire life to kids with, with this condition. Um, she's an endocrinologist working down, like we said, in the University of Florida, and we were lucky enough uh, to be able to get in to see her when Lyra was at about 13 or 14 months old, give or take. No, she was 10 months old. Yeah, 10 months. And it was like, I don't want to put it lightly, but it was like meeting a rock star because you <laughs> hear all these wonderful tales about her and just how she exudes this hope and inspiration in, in families. And she lives up to the hype. Um, she spends, and I've never had us spend that amount of time with a doctor, just us talking about our child and talking about our future or just talking in general, where she would sit on the floor and, and play with her or see what she can do and have all of her team, her staff there, her nutritionist there with you just to answer questions, anything that you have. She's also very unique in that, you know, if you're in her care, you can really reach out to her with any question that you have and she'll get back to you about it. And with a really good answer on what she thinks that you might be able to do. And she also provides a lot of support to help us educate our local team here, whether it be our local endocrinologist who she works really closely with for, for testing or monitoring things like that, but also our pediatrician with here's kind of, you know, what the next year or two might look like for Lyra, where we're going, what do we want to look for, special growth charts, all of that information is just really well thought out and laid out for everyone on our team. And tips for us too, um, as part of her early intervention team, you know, knowing things to look for. I, you know, I know between her and between the associate association, you guys have passed on great literature, great information and, you know, really educated us through her efforts as well. So Lyra sees her once a year, right? Yeah. It's like a pilgrimage to Florida. <laughs> it, it really is a pilgrimage. It's a, we, we <laughs> couple it usually with our family vacation because it's such a, a such a drive for us, but it definitely I is love, the pilgrimage. I love that when you guys, when it's time to go see her, that you're excited almost as if you're like going to see friends or family that you miss versus like, uh, another specialist, uh, a drive with two kids to Florida, you know, like it's something to look forward to versus something to dread, which uh, I think says a lot about her. I've never met her, but, um, yeah. I think, you know, as a fellow medical professional, I think that says a lot about what she brings to the table for your team. Yeah. I mean, I remember last year, of course, our appointment was virtually last year, but um, I was telling her that like, it's really hard to not compare your child to other children, whether with Prader-Willi syndrome or 
or a typical child um, to see like, oh, is my child meeting this where another child, you know, or, or whatever, are they behind or whatever? And, and I just remember like saying something to her and she's like, well, you should compare her to other child, children because she's freaking awesome. You know, I mean, like what doctor talks to you like that? Like, she's just, you leave there with like such a ray of hope and like excitement. And I mean, like Jeremy said, I think we were there for two hours, our first appointment. And I mean, yeah, she's definitely empowered you. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, that's clearly, clearly evident, which is just wonderful. Let's touch on development really fast. So, um, for any physical therapist listening, I can just say that when I met Lyra, she was how many months? I know you'll remember better than I was about. It was Valentine's day. I know it was so, Valentine's day. <laughs> um, she would have been a year and a half. No, no, no six months. Now. Sorry. Six months. Old. Six, seven months. Yeah. yeah. So I was full. Um, and I was talked into just please this one of Al. You don't have to take them for ongoing. Just please one of Al. And I showed up on Valentine's Day and she had a tutu on. And I was like, they told you to dress her like that. So I'll want to stay. But she was precious and also so tired and could barely lift her head off the ground. I mean, her muscle tone was so, so low. And when I tell you now for any PTs that are listening at two and a half, she's jumping, she's starting to actually run. She's learning to pedal a tricycle. She walks up and down the steps. I mean, she just, she goes on small hikes with their family. She, you know, plays ball with her sibling. Like she really is, is, very close to typical motor development for a three-year-old with only a few exceptions. Um, the low tone's still there. She's gained incredible strength through a lot of repetition. We did use a gait trainer with her for a short amount of time to get her over the hump and understand standing. Um, but she's made exceptional motor progress. Like I'm just so proud of her and so proud of you. I want I'm wondering if you can talk to us for a minute about her speech and language development, because I just find it absolutely fascinating. And I think our listeners will too. Can you tell us what's happened over the last year with her language? Yeah, I think this is maybe my favorite thing to talk about right now. So um, as we've mentioned, speech delays are pretty common. I know that I reached out to PWSA at one point to try to get some information for our speech therapists. And although in my opinion, this is some area, one of the areas it's kind of lacking because it's kind of hard to test, but they were telling me that it's probably more than 50% of uh, kids have some kind of speech delay. Um, and we've tried everything, right? Like we've tried flashcards, Kaufman cards. I mean, gosh, we just we've tried language, everything. Picture books. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And for so long, like she would move her mouth, but nothing would come out. And so we would say like, turn your voice on, or I can't hear you. And just nothing would come out. And there was getting to be, you know, as we're getting closer to three, like frustration because she has an opinion now she like, especially with like sippy cups, like she might want a a specific cup and we don't know which one she wants. And she's just pointing and screaming and getting more and more frustrated because we have no way of knowing what she wants. And so as a parent, sometimes it's hard to, I don't want to say claim defeat, but maybe claim defeat and be like, Hey, I think our next course of action is some kind of augmented device. Right. And I didn't come up with that first. Like the speech therapists have brought it up and say, we don't need to go down that road right now. Kind of like tiptoeing around it because it kind of is a sensitive subject. But at some point you're like, I can't continue listening to my child scream. I I need some, I need help here. Right. So we reached out to, you know, our speech therapist and we're like, I think it's time. Let's, let's order this device. Right. So we got a loaner 
to see if the specific type of device we got her, we're, we're using lamp words for life, um, if it would even work for her, because we could try a couple different ones. And we got the loaner device in the first day, she's typing, hello. She's typing um, like brother. And we're like, oh my gosh, like she found, first of all, she found the words on there, but like she's using them in the right context. And then fast forward to another month later, we get her official device, which we call her talker. And that specific day, it was kind of cold outside and her brother wanted to go outside and play. And she typed cold, cozy, don't play, play, talk. And to me, she told me everything I needed to know, right? She didn't want to go outside because it was cold. She was cozy inside and she wanted to play and talk on her talker. And like to be able to have your child communicate with you and know that there's something happening in there and it's coming out is just, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I don't know. And then I'm just going to tell you another story because this to no, me is just like, good. I, I don't know. This one just, so I think it was two weekends ago. We take the kids up to the school parking lot because we live on the side of a mountain. It's not very friendly for riding bikes. So we load the bikes up in the van, we go up to the school and we did a bunch of stuff. And when we, we don't necessarily always take her talker with us because it's kind of bulky for a little two-year-old. Um, and, but when we come home, we follow through like, and then we use her talker and we say what we did and, and we, you know, have her find the words on her talker. So the next day we were, it was like a Monday and our son and I are downstairs homeschooling and Jeremy was upstairs with her and she typed remote, which is what she does when she wants TV. And Jeremy said, no, let's have a conversation first. And so she types, I wrote it down so I can read it. Um, I love it. Play, bike, motorcycle, parking lot, pickup truck and wheel and then she followed up with remote again because she's like, hey, I had my conversation. I want the remote. I still want the remote. But she said everything that happened when we went to the parking lot and rode bikes. And her brother said, I'm going so fast. I feel like I'm riding, riding a motorcycle. And she typed motorcycle. And so for us on multiple levels, like, first of all, she remembered what happened the day before enough to then tell her dad the story about it. And it was accurate yeah so in terms of speech she's not just using her talker to make requests she's using her talker to tell stories and to interact with your family beyond just I want the purple cup right yeah so she's participating in your life now verbally with the assistance of the talker and on the verbal route She's talking more since she got the talker. That's true. We've heard more words, both quantitatively and qualitatively. And one of those examples is she, for the longest time, called her brother, brabra, And now we're getting brother. Um, now we're hearing wor- words like, there it is, or um, my book, or we were going up the steps and we count the first five steps and the first two steps the other day, she said one, two, and it was the appropriate context and it was clear as day. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot of people have reservations about getting devices for a lot of reasons, right? It's one more thing, one more obstacle that we have to go through with our child. Isn't it enough, you know, like everything that they have to go through. Now they have to have this piece of equipment that makes them look different. And And also, you know, like then a lot of, I know that a lot of the rule of thought is that like, oh, well, we're using this. So this is their voice now. No, it's not. It's just a means to get them to talk. Absolutely. Just like the gate trainer was a means to get her to walk. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes those things are training wheels. Sometimes those things are things we need forever or things we need in in certain circumstances. And not for all circumstances, but it, you're right. It's in, it's empowered her. She's way less frustrated. She seems 
when to me, like more times than not, she has a calmness in knowing that there's a way to let people know what she wants, where before there was like a frustration and anxiety of no matter what I do, they're not going to get it for the most part. Now, even if she's toddler frustrated, which is typical, she knows that she has a way to throw her tantrum that she wants to throw. Right. Is age typical and beautiful. I do want to say too, to any um, speech language pathologists that are listening that um, Lacey is her speech language pathologist, but in our system, she was able to team with an, uh, I guess her official title is ACC specialist, maybe ACC specialist. Is that what Tabby is? And we have a podcast episode with Tabby talking about um, ACC. So if you're interested in that for a kid with Prader-Willi or anything, check out that episode because she has been a godsend to this team. Um, in t- and it's a beautiful um, illustration, I think, of how two colleagues of the same discipline, but with different backgrounds can work together um, for a family. And it's really worked out super, super well. Um, and I, I'm just thankful that we've had that opportunity to try a loaner and to get her a device and, you know, to have the coaching of how to implement that device. It's just, it's just been awesome. Really awesome. Um, okay. Let's think we talked about if you wanted to say one thing to a therapist who was coming into your house, what about a parent? If, if, if there's a parent who's listening, uh, well, you've said some things that, you know, you already wanted to share. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to share with parents? Either one of you. I mean, I think the most important thing is love your child. We, I feel like when we got our diagnosis, people were, or even just being in the NICU, like people were afraid to say congratulations to us. We still had a baby. We still deserved congratulations, you know? And I think that having a diagnosis scares a lot of people. Um, but, and also, you know, you can get hung up in the monotony of appointments and just everything. It's hard in the beginning, but I think just loving your child is the most important thing. Um, also find your community. Um, the PWS communities in faith on the Facebook pages, like I mentioned, um, there's nothing better than knowing that you're not alone and that somebody else is going through the same thing that you are. And, you know, you can say things in those groups that, um, you know, they're not public pages and you can say, gosh, you know, I'm having a really hard day or I hate this diagnosis or, you know, look, look, my child, you know, drank from a bottle for the first time. And, and just the mini milestones another parent with Potter Willie is going to understand um, and just fight for your child. You know, I, I really think that there is no better advocate than a parent um, because just because a doctor or a therapist has a degree, it doesn't mean that they're good at their job. There's nobody that knows their child better than a parent. Mm-hmm. I like to give the analogy, like we're all a big team and we're all, we all should be working towards the same goal, but as her parents, you're the coach. So, you know, you're going to tell us what she needs and what you need. And you guys have just done a really good job at that. Can you talk for a minute? So um, Sherry, in addition to being great at a lot of things they both are but she is like exceptionally gifted with um crocheting and quilting and can, <laughs> can it's just really impressive to me who cannot sew a button on like she always has these beautiful things and she so generously shared some very sentimental creations um with our team as gifts but can you tell people about your blanket and the raffle that's going on right now Yeah. So I know people always say to me, like, how do you have the time to do these things? First of all, like, um, it is my therapy, um, in a way, um, I taught myself how to crochet on bed rest because I had a lot of time and I just really enjoy it. And, um, in my mind, 
Um, there's nothing better than receiving a homemade gift because that came from someone's heart and their hands. And um, so along the way, I have made an Afghan. The pattern is called Better Together. And I've given it to some special people in my life. And I am raffling off one custom made so you can pick the colors um, for every person that donates $50 or every $50 donation. Um, so I just need to know that somebody has donated $50. And then at the end of May, um, I will raffle it off. And so they're donating to Peter Yeah, PWSA. Okay. So how can they, how can they, um, we can link, we'll link the website to donate, but how can they send you the proof that they've donated their 50 if they want in on the drawing? What's the best way to do that? Um, I think you can share my email as well. Um, I mean, also too, you know, I'm here to help anybody with this diagnosis. So um, I don't mind you sharing that information. Okay. Perfect. So we'll link that too. So if you want to enter that drawing in the month of May to help with this research and advocacy um, for clinical trials and other things, that would be great. Um, so our last question we always ask people is the mic is yours. You can say anything you want. You can talk about your journey. You can talk about the diagnosis. You can talk about what you really think people should watch on Netflix or <laughs> I mean, <laughs> really anything. If for these listeners who are listening to this podcast, both of you, you both can answer. What, what, what do you want to share? So I mean, I think I talked about, um, you know, my therapy is crochet, but I mean, let's be true, honest here for a second. You know, the NICU has its own trauma. The diagnosis has its own trauma. And I really, um, Jeremy and I both go to therapy, um, individually. And I, I think that, you know, it's important that, that, that you find a safe space to talk to somebody. Um, and I think that, you know, professional help is, is a good place to go. Um, and then, um, I also just, you know, want to end with, you know, I know that there's a lot of parents who, um, in our community have this diagnosis and I feel like so many people could speak better to this than we can, but, you know, this is our experience. And, um, you know, I think that we have navigated through this the best that we can. And, and really, I mean, every parent just does the best that they can. And from my side, you know, I think a lot of times that fathers and dads are sometimes afraid to reach out for support. And honestly, a lot of the support groups that are out there are geared towards mothers. Um, there is a specific group for, for fathers with children with PWS. We're always welcome. It's all ages everywhere. And it's definitely not as active, but we do have, you know, good stories and, and share things as we need to and go through all those difficult times together as much as we can, but <clears throat> really don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to be involved with, with the therapist, with the appointments, with anything that you possibly can to be engaged with your child and your family, your wife, anyone out there, um, you know, instead of just either being stuck dealing with insurance companies or, you know, having to fill out all these different things that, that come up, but be involved and enjoy it because it's, it's unique, you know, the diagnosis doesn't define our family, you know, by and large, but it's still there. We still have fun. We still find ways to make it enjoyable and find time and be with each other and enjoy it all. Where can people find that group for dads? It is, it's a private group on Facebook. Um, we're always happy to add people. Um, usually it's just a request with admin, just like any other. Join. Yep. Okay. That's wonderful. And I agree with you. Um, I think that we need more dads like you and we need more uh, dads that are, you know, involved with, with kids who have medical complexities. And that also, I think it benefits the kid, but it also benefits the dad. I love that any session I could interchangeably do with either of you. <laughs> and it would go, it would go equally well or not depending on the day of how things <laughs> 
for, you right. know, for either any of us, you know, but um, she's really lucky to have you guys. Um, and your community is lucky to have you tell your story because stories always help other people, you know, you're right. Nobody wants to feel alone. And so I think that you've really done a good thing by sharing genuinely your story to let other people know that they aren't alone and to help people learn about this diagnosis. So thank you so much um, for being here. I will link um, a lot of the things that we talked about um, here with our posts so that people can find these resources easily. Um, we'll compile a list for anyone who's listening. If you haven't yet followed our podcast or given it a review, um, that is so helpful, more helpful than, than you could know um, for small podcasters like us. It really helps with awareness and helps our message to reach other people. So we would appreciate it if you would do that. As always, um, if you would like to access any of our resources or contact us, you can always find us through milestonesandmiracles.com. And so thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.